Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Today, in the UK, we've privatized the railways, coach companies, the banks, power, airports, the Royal Mail, water, BT, car companies. There's actually not much left to sell. So how are these privatized companies working out for us? We'll look at the issue of privatization today on the Debunking Economics podcast. So, Steve, the, the privatisation of railways in Britain, that's a good place to start on all of this. It's one of the legacies of Margaret Thatcher, although she was gone long before it was enacted. But we know what happened. It was split into regional franchises. Uh, we had two freight companies. We had rail track that was also privatised that maintained the infrastructure. But then that was brought back into public hands because we had that big crash in ha- uh, Hatfield in October 2000, which was caused by a broken rail. And, uh, you know, they were fined for that, but also they needed more government money to improve standards. And in the end, uh, that significant part of the privatisation story, the actual infrastructure itself, came back into public hands. So running trains across those lines still stayed, but the East Coast Main Line is now back in public hands because it wasn't profitable for Virgin Rail. This is the third time in a decade the company running that route has failed to meet the contractual obligations. Yet, Steve, many still argue rail privatization is a success i'm not quite sure how they argue it but they they have it they give it a damn good go i'd like to hear too i mean this is one of the things that i find quite hilarious with all the moving i do between europe and uh, and the uk because when i get to the uk one of the things i, I brace myself for is pardon the french shitty carriages um overcrowded bad infrastructure ugly stations and i know when i get back to europe i'm going to have normally speaking uh I've never. Ha- I don't think I've actually had to stand up. I've stood up once, pardon me, in a in a, in a European train. That was because I think there'd been a cancellation of all flights due to high winds, and for quality carriages and quality infrastructure. Yeah, the contrast couldn't be bigger. And they're all state-owned. And yet, hmm. I mean, they weren't that great here, I have to, <laughs> have to say, before privatisation either. So, I mean, not a lot's changed. But So Ian King, who's the business presenter on Sky News, he, he wrote on this. He gave mm-hmm. the argument for uh, privatisation. He says, 1.6 billion rail journeys are made annually, more than double the number before privatisation, while the volume of freight carried on the rails is up 80% since privatisation. He said it's also hard to see how renationalisation would solve the main passenger complaints, which are delays, overcrowding, and high ticket prices. Um, he said um, uh, many delays are up to t- uh, up to two thirds uh, increase depending on the route. And uh, oh no, so he's saying many of the delays, about two thirds, depending on the route, are caused not by the private operators but by Network Rail, which is already state owned. So has he got a point? I'm not actually. Don't see if we were to, uh, you know, follow the Labour route, the Jeremy Corbyn route, and uh, renationalise the railways, would fares actually drop? Only with big government subsidies, presumably. 
Well, I think this, one of, this is one of the things government can do because it's said government should be spending into the economy. I'd far rather spend in the economy by, by building decent rail infrastructure than hiring bureaucrats at universities to tell me whether I'm doing decent research or not. Um, <laughs> So there's there are there I'm is. I'm glad you got that in there. Uh, I know, I'm particularly. <laughs> pissed. I, 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 I had a bad experience last week with all this crap. Well, several bad experiences, and uh, and it's just you know, I want government spending to occur in ways that it's actually beneficial. Well, the and, crazy thing is the government is subsidising these rail companies, of course. Yes, as well, well yeah, they're not yeah. making profit. Yeah, yeah. So it, it it wasn't a source of profit as they thought it might be, and of course the the dream this. How, 80% increase. How long ago would the privatisation occur? Uh, in the uh, early 90s, wasn't it, that it uh, it finally took uh, took in? So, um, well, yes. I, I think there may have been about an 80% increase in the nominal the, the nominal value of the UK economy since 1990, which is yeah. roughly speaking, 25, yeah. you know, 20 something years ago. Well, there's the thing. Is he talking in real terms or not? I'm not sure. Uh, it, you, can, yeah. you, can, it's, you can always uh, create uh, compelling numbers if you uh, if you forget the effects of inflation, don't, can't you? Mm. So maybe he's doing a bit of that as well. But, um, yeah, look, I mean, we don't have to look too far. Transport for London was never um, nationalised. It was never privatised. It's a nationalised operation. Uh, The cost of, I worked it out, it's quite high. The cost of subsidy for Transport for London is basically 50 pence per journey. So every time you get on the tube, even though tube fares are pretty expensive, the government's paying 50 pence. Mm. But um, but if you look at it in another way, that 50 pence is 50 pence, which is not spent handling congestion on the roads, maintaining the roads, and the, mm. uh, and the pollution effects as well. And that's the thing with transport, isn't it? It's, you've got to look at it holistically. Yeah, and this is what's never been done. It's, 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 it is, you know, people have to move from one point to another somehow. And uh, in, in, if you actually had to do that in an entirely privatised basis, the cost would be enormous. So you, you, um, that, that is one classic case where the state can come along and say, we can spread these costs more broadly and finance it out of our capacity to create money as well. And, and that we need to do that anyway. So let's just think which create money in a useful fashion rather than by sending, maybe setting up interrogation gulags for migrants, which is another way they can create money. Um, Mm. We've so, also, yeah. and we've got yeah. a bizarre situation. We've got uh, some of these rail companies, like Southwestern Railways, is largely owned by the Hong Kong Rail Authority, which is largely owned by a foreign government. Yeah, I think they, they think the French, are, uh, the French and German governments own large slabs of the so-called privatised country. But what they don't do, and this this is where the argument for privatisation for things like transportation falls down completely, uh, even on its own neoclassical basis. The idea about privatisation improving uh, services assumes that you're going to have a whole bunch of firms competing for a service. When you make a geographic uh, a geographic uh, franchise, as the rail system has to be, so you've got, was it, was it Southwest Rail who goes to Brighton? I yeah, think uh, oh, okay. Southern Rail goes to Brighton. Southern, yeah. Southern Rail, okay. Sometimes, okay. not well, always. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's probably the most it, complained about Southern service. Southern Rail, it occasionally goes to Brighton. It's probably the best way to discover it. Occasionally goes to Brighton, yeah. 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 Occasionally, it's, it, you, you, you get a scenic journey on the way. You're seeing the ass of the person in front of you sitting down. Um <laughs> Yeah, it, it is just a, you know, there's no, there's no possibility for competition there. The competition is, okay, why don't you drive, which yeah. is another, you know, so, uh, or fly. I mean, it, it, is, it is simply impossible to have the, the fantasy of competitive markets applying in a, uh, a geographic franchise, which is what a rail system necessarily has to be. So is that, is that it? Is that where we determine what makes sense and what doesn't? Is it geography? If, if in, in, nas- in privatising something, we have to give a geographic monopoly, then it's a bad idea. If it, there's it, not that geographic monopoly, then we can look at it seriously. 
To some extent. I mean, for example, one classic area where it makes absolute sense to have public ownership of the infrastructure with private ownership, with private uh, suppliers competing for it is something like the internet. Yeah. You, want to have a, you want to have a network which goes to every last house uh, in the country as cheaply as possible. Mm. And I'll give you my, my favourite example there, by so the I'm way. I'm not sure I agree with you on this, but I'll let you finish your point. Yeah. Okay, okay. It, it, it makes sure the service goes to every physical building in the country. And then you don't you don't care how much it costs you you you, you may do it by publicly you might you might say the private groups have to have to do it themselves but then you have com- competition for supplying the services along that backbone and guess which country I'm thinking of that did this well you're thinking of Australia as uh, no, as trying no, to do that all right no, okay no no South Korea all right okay yeah I yeah a f- I, very a, very densely populated country of course so it's a lot easier to do there the the I'm not sure I totally agree with you. So if you've got somebody who lives in a um, in a hut in the Shetland Islands, uh, do we does the government pay to connect up that house to the internet, or do we actually say, well, that is clearly going to cost a lot of money? If you really want to be on the internet, you've got to leave. You've got to leave your hut. You've got to go. You've got to at least move to a town in the Shetlands. You've got to have, you, you have to certainly get mod, you know, verify, vary the type of technology you use, but you want to get the fastest possible service you can and, and not impose the cost on the individuals because then what you get is the sort of concentration you're talking about. Right. The other side of the argument as well is, and this is, you know, the interesting case, because I mean, we are, the, the, the case study behind all of this, of course, is the, you know, what happened and what went wrong with the National Broadband Network in Australia. Oh, it's not fair to, let's not spend Malcolm Turnbull on that one. Let's just, no, but I mean, the whole idea of that was that the government should provide the the national backbone infrastructure that you're talking about, uh, like in, in South Korea, um, and then retailers would just sit on top of it. But mm. that's not the way it worked. And it's and, and it's cost a lot of money. There's There's been a huge amount of time spent arguing about uh, cost subsidization between uh, regional centers and uh, uh, and capital cities. If you look at the UK, the internet industry is streets ahead without that regulation. In fact, in our street, and we're in, you know, in uh, just on the edge of the countryside here in Surrey, uh, and, uh, you know, we've got Virgin Media wanting to run cable down our road, which is already cabled up by, uh, by BT, but they want to provide an alternative infrastructure. And why shouldn't they, if it's economic for them to do so? I think, well, they... I- so this argument of of of, uh, of infrastructure competition, I like you. I used to be dead against. I was thinking, well, that doesn't make sense. That's what's you know what the telecoms industry calls an overbuild. Mm. But uh, if two companies believe that they can uh, sustainably compete against each other, why not let them? It depends on you. You don't need to you know. To, you don't need to, no. But okay, because the, the capacity is so great and growing, you know, exponentially over time anyway. It's a, it's, it's a waste in that sense. You better have to say, we want you to, if you want to compete, get together, provide the cable. Uh, in, there's no need for two of those cables. They're never going to do that. Yeah, okay. I know. There's no need, but they're yeah. never going to do that because one but of them is going to... No, that's what the South Koreans did. This is yeah. the point I was getting to earlier. The mm. South Korean government basically told the telecommunications companies, I think they had some government involvement in them as well, but they were basically told, we don't care how much it costs, you've got to do it. If you want to operate in this country, you've got to provide uh, you know, telecommunications background of every, every and the funny way that I saw this, I found out about it, was that I had and you, you, you called me a Marxist in the last program, if I remember rightly. Well, I actually <laughs> had a genuine, really you know, you, you, you know, cardboard cutout Marxist uh, come to visit me in Australia, who was the head of the uh, the uh, Marxist political party in South Korea. Did he have the beard? And he, yeah, he did. He did. 
Um, anyway, he came came to see me and spent about a, a few couple of months you know, having a go at me. But my, we got on well, but he was very old-fashioned labour theory of value type, which, of course, I'm not. And um, but he, wanted, he got me to get him accommodation. And when I got the apartment for him, he got out his laptop and he was walking around the word laptop, carrying the laptop with an Ethernet cable in his hand, trying to find a plug. And I had to tell him, this is back in 1990 or something like that, I just said, there is no uh, Ethernet cable in this house. He said, what? Mm. And he was stunned because even as a Marxist, you know, he, he just took it for granted the government would tell the companies to provide this service to every house. But that's what happened in South Korea. Right. Now, that's, of course, where we, we <clears> talk <throat> about major South Korean telecommunications. But, that's why they got they, they If the kids were playing in those rooms, now run Samsung and the like. I find it very hard to believe that a non-nationalized, uh, a non-privatized BT or a non-privatized Telstra uh, would be pushing ahead with their, with cutting edge technology if they didn't have to, if they still had a, if they still had a monopoly, or if they had competitors who didn't have the same advantages that they have in in owning that that last. Yeah, mile. they've got they've got to be forced into it. But this again, yeah. they, they they were I think the companies in South Korea were were basically compelled to get together to provide a cable. The, the, the rule was there had to be T one. Was it what's it called T one hundred? The old standard for Ethernet connections. Yeah, yeah, a T one connection. Yeah, had to be T one connection to every building in the country. Hmm. Okay. Now that worked, and of course, we, Samsung and so on are, are, are brilliant. The reason the Australian system stuffed up so much, as you, you and I both know, is Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Bloody Abbott uh, stuck their political noses into the whole thing to try to undermine Kevin Rudd and Malcolm, who should know better, and you know he should know better because you know him. Uh, got did Tony's be- uh, becking and went from having the idea of having cable to the to the to the premises to cable to the node. Uh, which which completely hamstrung the quality of right. the system but in if, Australia. Yeah, but the problem was they were trying to make it pay for itself as well, which would have given that's us, the other uh, problem. Would, again, have, this is, would have yeah. given Australia the most expensive internet in the world, whether you know whether you used it a little or, or or not at all, or used it a lot. So okay, well we might argue about the the the, the level of you know whether. Uh, it's been good in the telecommunications space. I mean, you'd have to argue competition would be good in the telecommunications space, but it's it's just where it sits. Health is a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? But, although, again, it's an interesting one. So um, the UK is uh, – the NHS is, uh, is, is almost a religion in the UK. Uh, health mm-hmm. is largely in public hands. And if you look at the costs, I mean, it's too, the cost of health care for every person in the UK – averages out at less than £3,000 a year. In the United States, uh, it's £7,600 per person, and uh, their life expectancy is lower. So they're paying more than twice the amount, and uh, they're getting a worse service at the end of the day. So we, we look at you know the problems with the NHS, and there's attempts to try and break out bits of it and privatise bits of it. But if you go with the whole way of the, NH- uh, of the US system, you've got a, a far less efficient approach. Yeah, because and this is again one reason that the whole idea of competition theory doesn't make well, it doesn't make any sense in its own right, but it makes even less sense when you apply it to things like health, because it implies you're going to go and shop around. Now, if you're told <laughs> you have terminal cancer, you're going to try to get the best damn surgeon you get. Uh, you're not going to when you, you know, I mean, the whole idea of, of the lower price means the competition will drive the price down. And oh, you're going to charge me two thousand, you know, three thousand dollars for that operation. This is going to charge me five hundred bucks. I'll go for the 500-buck doctor. No damn way. You say, you're going to charge me 500? This is my life case. Who's the guy who's going to charge me 3,000? He's going to do a better job. You take price as a quality indicator. So, uh, and, and then what also gets caught up is because you have private competition going on here, most of the expenses go in bloody marketing. 
Mm. And the whole idea that getting rid of the private, the public system and going to the private is going to reduce the costs. Seems because all these, all these inefficient administrators, I have no doubt they're in it. <laughs> I've seen a few inefficient administrators in, in publicly run systems. But if you make it privatised, what you get is inefficient marketers instead. Mm. And I, frankly, I'd rather have the inefficient uh, bureaucrats than the bloody marketers trying to sell their health product mm. versus my health, the other health product to you. But what are all the marketers going to do, Steve? What, 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 I mean, they, they're, they're going to be unemployed. You've got it. Uh, we, I could, you, we know there's a planet for them <laughs> called Gil Gafranchin. If you know, you'll hitchhike a guy to the galaxy. Put yeah. them all on it. You know, those in the telephone sanitizers, put them on a ship. Telephone sanitizers first. Absolutely. So what about, exactly uh, so energy is another interesting one, isn't it? So uh, because the privatization of energy companies, the result of that, again, it does get down to marketing, doesn't it? Because we've seen confusing price plans, which are designed to trap people who don't churn, basically. If you don't check on the plan every year, we're going to gradually you move, move you on to a slightly worse one. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you want to switch, uh, we'll make sure you get a good deal. Or if you ask about switching, we'll make sure you get the best deal that's available. In other words, we'll, we'll, we'll put low entry prices, but if you don't bother getting back in touch with us, the price is going to keep on going up. Mm. And that's marketing, sadly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Ofgem, which is the energy industry regulator, has now said, well, we're going to introduce a price cap. So it's a privatized industry, but the government is putting a lot of control in. So the typical user now should use no more than £1,137 a year. This is kicking in in the UK at the start of next year. So, uh, But that's for the, for the typical user. So the moment you start to do this, the government gets involved. It gets very complicated, doesn't it? Because what happens if you're not a typical user? What if you use 50% more? Do they have to put another cap on? For 50% more, in which case, or, or do the companies say, well, no, we haven't got, you know, you're not a typical user, so we're going to start charging you at a steeper rate, in which case the caps achieve nothing. Or the government says, no, we're going to put other points in, in which case they are being uh, very pres- prescriptive of retail prices. So there's no room for innovation. It achieves nothing at the end of the day. Yeah, and it's even worse if you look at the actual retail, the wholesale market that lies behind this, because again, the idea that privatization would, would lead to more, the greater efficiencies and so on ignored the whole marketing issue to begin with. But it also ignores one thing, which is absolutely essential for products like electricity. And that is you don't want it to fail. Yeah. Uh, you want absolute uh, engineering cal- caliber there. And if you bring in private companies, they will often let that slip. Um, but at the same time, the, the what, one thing I know from the Australian, uh, uh, wholesale energy market is that the price the, because they've got a totally market driven price there depending on volumes of demand from Queensland versus volume of demand from Victoria and shifting between one place and another and so on the wholesale price can can hit well over a thousand dollars a kilowatt and and then other times fall as low as you know down to ten dollars a kilowatt that sort of range the incredibly volatile operation and if you don't have your plant operating for about I think it's about three days of the year in terms of how many where those really high price spikes exist, you don't make a profit. So what you've got is everybody's encouraged to put a larger margin in to try to, you know, to, to spread that capacity to make a profit across the whole system. It's a dog's breakfast. And the, the intention was to bring the system into retailers. Uh, so to go, you know, having successfully, inverted commas, uh, converted the wholesale market to uh, a, a free-floating price auction system, um, then you do the same thing at the at the uh, retail level. Now, when they realise that that might mean that if you turn your your two bar radiator on one night in winter, you end with a bill for a thousand dollars for the day. Um, they realise they simply politically couldn't do it. 
So we get this total mess of a, of a completely privatised, completely free free price system, extremely volatile, far more volatile than economic theory ever even could imagine prices being uh, for wholesale electricity. And then all these crazy caps and people, as, as I've seen, the Australian Institute came out recently with a say, paper by Richard Dennis talking about uh, how he has uh, you know five or six different uh, companies all competing to supply uh, very, very different electrons to him uh, for his. <laughs> Our electrons are so much more efficient. Yeah, oh, exactly. Personality. You know, ours have got spin and charm. Yours haven't got spin and charm. <laughs> it's those mice, those damn marketers again. Uh, again. Uh, so what, I mean, the danger is though, I mean, we talked about lots of examples here of stuff that should be in government hands. Should there be any? So should they just be holus bolus in government hands? Is there any room for competition in any of these industries? I think it comes down to the, the, the you know the, the two major determinants: economies of scale and network effects are pretty much the issues you need to look at, no. and also reliability. So if you need a hundred percent reliability for something, uh, then you simply mm. you don't rely upon competitive pressures because there's uh, in the classic here by the way but a lot of people would also say you don't, you don't rely on the government doing it as well well no you, you want you want overbuild you want overbuild in this particular area so uh, my favorite example of the of the perils of privatization uh is a wonderful book by a mate of mine called chris shield who's a he's a historian at the university of new south Wales, and the title is waters fall and you know, it, it, it's pretty heavy try to pun there. But he went through the impact of privatisation of water and sewerage services in Australia in great detail. And the classic is the story of what's known. If you, if you, tell me if you stop me if you've smelt this before. Have you heard of the Adelaide Pong? Mm, no. Okay. It's Adelaide just, I'm just Pong. adding it to my list of reasons not to go there. Okay, I've just lost five subscribers at Adelaide, thanks. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, Adelaide privatised its sewerage system and it, it happened, The you know, Adelaide's pretty much heavily you know, affected by the prevailing weather. Yeah. Uh, being a desert state. And the uh, the sewerage treat and tanks happened to be upwind, the prevailing wind most of the time, of Adelaide. Mm. And uh, the I think it was a French company that got the contract for the for the um, for the sewage treatment works, and to increase their short-term profits, they neglected the maintenance on the bacteria in the treatment ponds, and finally, the anaerobic bacteria killed all, killed all the aerobic. There wasn't enough oxygen in the mix, and for about six months to a year, Adelaide was beneath what was called the great the big the big pong, courtesy of the failure of the privatised group, because one way they could increase their short-term profits was by neglecting long-term maintenance. Now, you don't want that in something as essential as sewerage or so, water or electricity. So it just became a cesspit rather than a sewage works, in, in, in effect. So, in effect. So where do, where do we – so where, where does this well, – where, well, where do we you, draw the line on all of this? Because I could give – you know, just for example, airports are often uh, privately run now. Airlines that used to be in, in government hands are now normally privately run. Banks, obviously, uh, another example. I mean, where do we draw the line and say, well, okay, the, the post office is another example. Where, you know, where is, where is it good and where is it bad? To I, have- I think, I think if you, is there's no hard and fast, but you certainly start rely absolute 100% reliability and what's likely to be the incentives for a private versus a public institution in that area. And that's the thing I come down and say it should be public because you want the reliability. You don't want the electricity to fail during, during operations in a hospital, okay? Um, uh, you don't want electricity to pay a fail, period. So you want 100% reliability of the electric system. While I, quite like, got- I quite like my air- aircraft to be reliable as well. That- yeah, but I, they, I'm, yeah, happy, but I'm happy to fly on a private airline. 
The private airlines, well, the thing is, <laughs> uh, when they fail, they really fail. So that's that's the. But probably that's, that, that would be the same whether it was government owned or not, though. You know, that's. Uh, I mean, that's that's an example, isn't it? Where I mean, because the whole company's reputation is based on how many people that managed to. Yeah, yeah, to that's survive, right. Isn't it, it, last year. Yeah. And it, it's it's something which uh, the bad operators get driven out pretty rapidly, and they don't come back. Whereas in in banking, of course, we haven't seen that particularly happening. But it's a, it's said it's you look at the economy, the absolute reliability is needed. You need the economies of scale. Are they are they extreme, and therefore is scale better? So the bigger the better. So in that case, you don't want to have competitors. You want to have one major source. It therefore should be the government, but they won't price gouge. Uh, and then the network effects. Uh, it, and the network effects extreme, and often that can end up means well, this should be privatised because uh, in, if you look at things like. Like you, you were giving the example of of, uh, of cable being laid in different locations. When you have extremely dense population areas, then sometimes it does make sense to say let's let's allow competitors to come here and and offer multiples. But in the if you, the same time, you don't want to be in a part of the country where there isn't internet because the guy in the what the the, the Orkney Islands. Uh, couldn't afford to have it, and you have a you know a breakdown, and you're going to die of cold, and you haven't got any internet connection to call an ambulance. Uh, but, you want you you want that reliability spread widely, right? But here's a crazy situation on that. So in Australia, uh, you've you've got cross subsidisation of the government is building the national broadband network, and they're building it in regional Australia, building it to every home in Australia, in effect, in in one form or another. It's obviously costing more to get people who are living out in the sticks than it is to get people who are. Uh, living in the cities. Companies said, well, but we want to compete in the contestable areas. So the government is saying, well, okay, now we'll let you do that, but you have to pay the cross-subsidy amount, uh, the same as we are. So in effect, people are in the in the cities are forced to pay higher prices. And it's not an insignificant sum. It's something like uh, 5 or $7 per month per connection. Mm. It has to be paid at the wholesale level by those companies that are putting in alternate infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, that is something which... It, it, it comes down to are you a society or not? Mm. And uh, if you are a society, then you, 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 you provide that services across your society as best you can. Again, I'll go, I'll use Kerry Packard as an example in one of our last podcasts. Uh, Kerry is an, a, a classic. He actually died, as you and I both know, mm. um, during a polo match. And the reason he was still alive to talk about it and, of course, say that he didn't see any starry gates when he was dead. It was because his uh, helicopter pilot gave him uh, a bodily part. Uh, no, that was well before that happened. Oh, he okay. he actually had a heart attack and was going to die. Uh, oh, the defibrillator! The, yeah, you've told me the story. The, before. An, had the ambulance had a defibrillator, and which was, it just happened to be he was lucky enough to have a heart attack near an ambulance which had a defibrillator attached. Yeah, and he then said, "Do they all have this?" And the guy said, "No, they don't." And he says, "The next day, he just said, I'm going to provide a defibrillator for every ambulance in the country.'" Well, there's and, there's there's a private operator helping a uh, yeah a, a yeah so I'm but a, helping a government provided service, of course. Yeah, and that's that's uh, so. Our Kerry Packer doesn't isn't isn't the uh, I've got a bit more time for Kerry Packer as one of Australia's billionaires than some of the others these days. So but the that, po- the, the that, post the post office in the year. Yeah. yeah, sorry, you finish off your point. Sorry, he re- he recognised that need. Yeah. He, you don't know when you're going to have the heart attack, okay? Yeah. In that sense, as a society, you want to have it available everywhere. So the post office works pretty well in the UK. It's horrendously expensive to post letters here, uh, but in Australia, the post office is still in, in government hands. Uh, it, it's cheaper, but the letters take forever. I've had letters that haven't been delivered. I, find, I think Australia Post is 
pretty holeless, bolus, inefficient. Whereas I think the UK postal service expensive, but quick. You know, you'll you'll post something uh, five or six o'clock in the evening, and you'll find it's at the other end of the country the next morning. Uh, and it actually made a profit last year, first time in a decade. But they must be doing something right, and they they look like they're benefiting from being in in um, in private hands, even yeah, though they're sort of a monopoly. That can happen, but again, it's it's the, again it's it's the structure of the network itself. You got to look at it and say what part of this network is going to be too expensive for private operators to make a profit out of. So the government has to provide it at and and and, and generate the and, and you know, fund it itself through its money creation capability. Plus, it's you know it's it's uh, sharing of the burdens of providing physical resources across the whole of the population, even though the people people are providing that don't get necessarily the direct benefit. And what are parts that the, you know, the, you, you want a, a band of people competing with each other or you want franchises operating? Um, it, it's, it's no, there's no straightforward, hard and fast answer, but certainly it isn't that everything should be privatised, which, of course, was the ideology that Maggie Thatcher yeah. began this whole experience with. For two reasons she gave, and many people since her, that, you know, the case for privatisation is it improves service quality somehow, magically, not seeing that with Southwestern Railways, I must admit, uh, and it saves taxpayers' money. Yeah, well, a lot, a lot of the, again, a lot of it was, was shifting costs off the... Uh, trying to shift costs off the books of the government to make it look like the government can run a surplus, was, as you know, I regard that as insanity in the first place. The government should be running a deficit and creating part of the money supply of the economy. And one way to run that, to get that deficit is to cover, is to pay for the cost of uh, things like you know, infrastructure, uh, you know, broadband, health services, et cetera, et cetera, which people will get benefit out of uh, independent of their position in the market economy. Right. So that, yeah, but it, it, that, that's a two stage. This is a two stage argument. You've got to win there, though, with the neoclassic economists, isn't it? I just wonder whether there's a simpler argument about saving tax, not saving taxpayers money without saying, well, actually, you know, we've got to look at the whole question of tax and whether the government should run a deficit or not. Yeah. But also, I mean, the, 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 the classic thing, though, in terms of the quality of service, uh, the quality of marketing is much better. But the quality of service, my <laughs> God, it's dreadful. <laughs> well, there we are, as I say, it's great jobs for lots of marketers. The, the final point, I guess, in all of this is the whole question about innovation. So we've got Elon Musk with his space exploration. You know, he's got a Tesla orbiting the sun. Uh, private enterprise sometimes does do stuff better, doesn't it, if it's doing new stuff? Well, there's a combination of things. This is where two of the best books, uh, uh, intellectual books on how innovation occurs, uh, uh, one by Mariana Mazzucato talking about the role of the state as an entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial state, and saying that often the state is the one which will provide uh, research funding for totally blue sky ideas, which ultimately come back and benefit everybody. And the other is Bill Janeway with a book called uh, Doing Doing Capitalism in the... Doing... Capitalism and the Entrepreneurial Economy, I think it's called. And Bill talks about venture capitalists and how their, their role in funding. Now, Bill and, and Mariana, I believe, are friends. This is not that they're putting two opposing arguments together. They're both looking at different ends of the same elephant. And what, what, they, what unites them both is they say that innovation occurs when people can afford the risk of failure. Mm. Now, there's two extremes which are going to cause you the can't risk do that. And you can't do that in the government. You can do that. You should be able to do it in the government. Yeah, but and generally the, you can't. Well, the, the government can't allow that the failures, every failure creates another 100 bureaucrats to make sure the failure doesn't happen again. But, if, for example, building things like NASA, where you're told you've got to get a rocket to the, to the moon and we don't care about the cost, uh, then you, you make your failures 
in the en- enormous cost you incur in the first instance for no profit. And then out of that, we get all the benefits. Now, Elon Musk is the first one, and he said, I've literally seen tweets by him acknowledging this. He wouldn't have achieved what he has achieved without NASA. And uh, not just building on what NASA did, but actual contracts with NASA. Uh, and what you have is the, the government's the only institution which can take on the enormous costs that develop at the very first stage of something like space exploration. But once the government's done that loss leading and the technology becomes uh, you know, more commonplace and, and you, know, you can actually hire rocket engineers you know, by looking, putting an ad on Google, um, you get to the stage where the private institutions can come in and then you can get the points where people like the innovation that Musk has been doing and how fast he alters the rockets on a virtually a flight-by-flight basis. NASA, once it got them working, this is where your point about fear of failure came in. Once they worked, that was it. They stuck with the model they had at that point. They wouldn't continue innovating. So you need a mixture of the two. So um, final question then, are you a Corbynista? Do you believe that uh, a lot of what's already been privatised should be pulled back into, into public hands, like the railways? Oh, and, in the railways, definitely. I mean, this is the, the and, the, and utilities like electricity and gas? Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the electricity and gas, you want them to be reliable and running all the time. And, of course, Australia is a classic example, again, of the disasters of privatising a gas service. They've got the most expensive gas on the planet with the world's largest resources of gas at the same bloody time. So, yes, I would like to have those things re, 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 brought back into the public ownership again. And then we make intelligent decisions about when we make changes like this rather than our decisions based purely on ideology, which was the original basis and of, of privatisation. And, of course, we had banks that were effectively... Uh, Renationalized because the government bought them back during the after the financial crisis, but didn't change their behaviour or their structure in any sense. No penalties for the uh, chief executives either. No, that this it's it's. I would like to have one public bank definitely in every country at least, and a lot of community banks uh, having a, a, a different range of of, of uh, ownership and management structures in banking. And a, a range of different areas. The whole, the, one of the dangers of this whole privatization philosophy versus the other extreme, which is total state ownership, of course, they're both monocultures. Mm. You don't have the variety to give you innovation and and challenge. And this is the you know it's 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 debates which you said you know should we have a forest contesting just of pines or just of eucalypts? Um, maybe you get a better situation where you have a, an ecosystem of different types, which that the variety of systems compete with each other and get you innovation and change out of that. The, the, in, in the standard privatisation versus government ownership, you've got two monocultures intellectually competing with each other. They're both wrong. Now, I wish I knew the Samaritans number for people who are in distress and need help, but if you are a marketing manager and you do feel distressed, <laughs> uh, there is help available. Uh, good to talk, Steve. We'll catch you again very soon. Okay, mate, bye. And that's it for this time. Not sure what we're going to talk about next time, uh, but we're never short of ideas, but your ideas are also welcome as well. If there's something you'd like us to discuss, uh, then leave a comment or get in touch with us through the usual channels. Till next time, I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. Uh, Have yourself a great day. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.